Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Hello and welcome to the July 2021 edition of the Future Leaders Communicate. I'm Dr. Brendan Morrissey, the consultant editor uh, for this edition, and I'm joined today by Dr. Kate Charters. Kate, hello. Hi, Brendan. Thanks for inviting me today. Oh, thank you. All right dive right in. Uh, Katie, you've done a great uh, job in bringing this issue together as the guest editor. First, for our uh, listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and interests? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm an early phase advanced trainee with the Australian College of Emergency Medicine, and I'm currently working at the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre. I really like the variety of patients that we get to see in the ED, anyone from a, a broken bone to someone who's critically unwell, And alongside my training, I also enjoy research and public health and particularly in the trauma and road traffic accident sphere. Thank you. Um, We might dive right in and go on to our guest editorial. So we'll lead into that now. Welcome to the Future Leaders Communique, episode number six. Guest editorial from Kate Charters. This edition of the Future Leaders Communique starts with a simple problem. A bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? If your first thought was $0.10, you will need to take a second look, but take solace in knowing that you are not alone. This question is an example of a cognitive reflection test popularised by Professor Daniel Kahneman in his 2011 book, Thinking Fast and Slow. In this book, Kahneman discusses his research on cognitive biases, that is, common thinking patterns that can lead to error. In the above example, the fast, intuitive mind instinctively comes up with the solution to an easier problem to tackle, that of addition, mentally substituting $1 more than with $1. This gives the answer 10 cents. It takes the slow, logical mind to do the correct calculation and discover that the ball in fact costs five cents. In healthcare particularly, an over-reliance on fast, intuitive thinking has the potential to lead to disaster. In this edition, 
we feature the case of Mr A, who attended an emergency department with a common presentation that went tragically awry, resulting in his death. The contributing factors were a failure to identify the adverse effects of a medication in a patient who was clinically deteriorating. There were several occasions for medical staff to recognise the deterioration, escalate care and intervene that unfortunately were missed. The first theme arising from the case that we address in this edition is medication safety. Adverse effects due to medication are very common. A recent report on medication safety by the Pharmacological Society of Australia identified that approximately 400,000 emergency department presentations and 250,000 hospital admissions per year are medication-related, of which half are preventable. These medication issues are even greater amongst patients 65 years and older. Opioid use has high risk for potential medication-related harm. Opioids are the most common cause of unintentional drug-induced death since 2001. More than half of these deaths are from prescription opioids. Key factors leading to an increase in prescription opioid-related harm include unrealistic patient expectations of pain management, overprescribing, and a lack of educational programs for health professionals. Many approaches have been proposed to reduce the risk of harm from prescription opioids. These include increasing education provided to junior doctors, increasing the role of pharmacists within the hospital multidisciplinary team, implementation of an acute pain service and opioid stewardship programs. The second theme we address in this edition is identifying and responding to a patient who is clinically deteriorating. Rapid response teams that identify patients in hospital who are at risk of deterioration have also been found to be effective in reducing potentially avoidable adverse events and deaths. However, These systems require whole-of-hospital engagement. In one Victorian study, only 3.6% of patients who met rapid response team criteria had an activation called. Delayed rapid response team activation has been associated with a doubling of the risk of in-hospital mortality. The factors behind this are complex, but are predominantly attributed to hospital culture, with barriers reported including a fear of criticism for incorrect rapid response team activations, dismissive responses from team members, and disempowerment amongst junior staff. Our expert commentaries are from Dr Anna Corinne, an emergency medicine physician who is also the supervisor of an intern training at Alfred Health, and Miss Anne Laversha, a clinical pharmacist and director at Medication Education and Management Australia. Dr Anna Corinne's piece resonates with me as a junior doctor as it acknowledges the intricacies of prescribing analgesics and gives a framework for thinking about pain management. Anne Laverche's perspective highlights the importance of the pharmacist's involvement within the multidisciplinary team, as optimal health care is based on the strength of the team and our ability to work together. As you read through this edition, I would like you to consider what checkpoints you use in your practice to think slow, as Professor Kahneman would say. How do you support your team to take a step back and think, is there something we are missing? And if so, what tools or assistance can we use to find out?
Editorial from Brendan Morrissey. Welcome to the July 2021 edition of the Future Leaders Communique. In this edition, we examine two topics central to patient safety, iatrogenic injury and barriers to escalation of care. Our case is that of Mr A, a 53-year-old man admitted to hospital with severe neck pain who was found dead in his hospital bed three days later. The coroner found that this was a preventable death as it was due to fentanyl and oxycodone toxicity. Every day in Australia, on average, three people die from opioid toxicity. In this cohort, pharmaceutical opioids are responsible for more deaths than heroin. Despite this, the prescription of pharmaceutical opioids continues to increase in Australia. In 2017, one in eight Australians had one or more opioid prescriptions dispensed. The reasons for this increase are multifactorial, but it is abundantly clear that mitigation of harm must become our highest priority whenever we consider the prescription of opioids to our patients. To that end, both expert commentaries for this edition offer insights and advice on the safe prescription and monitoring of opioid medications. We hope you find their pearls of wisdom helpful in navigating this challenging area of clinical practice. Throughout the course of Mr A's hospital admission, there were several clinical reviews which, by the standard of local protocol, should have triggered an escalation in his clinical care. Testimony from those involved in Mr A's care revealed that the reasons escalations did not occur included staff inexperience with opioid toxicity and not wishing to inconvenience colleagues. There is a dissonance in this reasoning that is worth further reflection. Protocols for clinical escalation are familiar to most, if not all, health professionals. The purpose of these protocols are to trigger an automatic clinical escalation and to remove variations in care that may occur due to inexperience or cultural influences. It appears that in this tragic case of Mr A, these more human factors trumped the automatic escalation protocols. This is perhaps unsurprising, but it reminds us that the workplace culture to which we contribute to in our day-to-day practice may have a profound impact on patient care. It is not enough to simply remove barriers to escalation. We must work to create a psychologically safe environment in which even the most junior staff feel comfortable to raise their concerns. We should encourage questions and promote discussions amongst our teams so that each member has a shared understanding of any given scenario. When errors, oversights or near misses occur, we must embrace these as opportunities to understand where care could be improved. All of this is far easier said than done. It requires insight, a sustained focus on and how we contribute to our workplace culture. Our patients deserve nothing less. Our guest editor for this edition is Dr Kate Charters. Dr Charters is an emergency registrar with a passion for evidence-based medicine and a particular interest in public health. 
She is currently working as an emergency registrar at Alfred Health, Melbourne, and is an advanced trainee with the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. Kate has navigated the labyrinth details of this coroner's report to bring sharp focus to the learning points from the case and engaged two exemplary clinicians and educators, Dr Anna Karin and Anne Laversha, to explore and unpack these topics further. We very much hope this edition adds to your understanding of opioid toxicity and barriers to escalation of care. It serves as a resource for reflecting on and evolving your clinical practice. Welcome back. Our next section will be the case summary for this edition. Kate, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from researching this case and what your peers may take from it? Mm, um, I thought this was a really interesting case because it takes a patient with a really common problem, pain, And there are really common hospital pressures that we're all familiar with, but then there's a really uncommon outcome. And personally, as a junior doctor, there's often this pressure just to get through your tasks, get through your ward round, clear your pages. But we see some really clear red flags in this case that show the need to slow down and escalate concerns and the unfortunate consequences of when that doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really interesting point on the commonality of, of the case here. I think this is a situation that we've all run into in the past. Um, I think there's plenty to learn from it. Um, so let's dive right in and listen to our case summary. When more is not better, from Dr. Kate Charters. Clinical summary. Mr. A was a 53-year-old man who presented to the emergency department of a public tertiary hospital with his wife on a Friday evening with a seven-day history of a shooting pain in the back of his neck which radiated to his fingers. He also had drooping on the right eyelid. His past medical history included chronic pain, secondary to cervical spine degeneration and obstructive sleep apnea. He had previously used prescription opioid medications for the chronic pain, however, had self-ceased these due to concerns about addiction and had been using an over-the-counter combination of paracetamol and codeine as needed for the past year. In the emergency department, Mr A's vital signs were normal. He was investigated with a chest x-ray, CT brain and carotid ultrasound, which were all normal. The differential diagnoses included Horner's syndrome, cervical radiculopathy, and a carotid dissection. The case was discussed with the on-call neurologist who recommended admission to the stroke unit for an MRI of his head and cervical spine on Monday. Mr A's regular medication was prescribed and oxycodone 5 to 10 milligrams was added for analgesia to be given four times a day pro renata with a requirement for two hourly observations. Mr A was admitted to the stroke neurology ward for ongoing care and his nursing observations were taken every four hours. He reported high pain scores overnight of 9 out of 10, which were treated with a total of 1 gram of paracetamol and 10 milligrams of oxycodone. The covering intern reviewed Mr A at 0600 hours, where Mr A reported a pain score of 10 out of 10 and appeared distressed. 
The intern increased his oral oxycodone to 10 to 20 milligrams four times a day pro Renata and added subcutaneous fentanyl 75 to 150 micrograms every two hours pro Renata on the condition that his sedation score remained less than two. A progress note was written in his file requesting that the home team reviewed the analgesia if felt appropriate. Later that morning, the stroke consultant and intern reviewed Mr A on their ward round. The review was interrupted by an emergency call and the plan documented was to continue the current analgesia. They were not aware of his high pain scores overnight and did not review the medication chart. Throughout Saturday, Mr A continued to report high levels of pain between 6 to 9 out of 10 that was treated with oxycodone and fentanyl as per the medication chart. These pain scores mandated a multidisciplinary team review as per hospital policy, however this did not occur. Overnight, Mr A's oxygen saturations dropped to 90% after oxycodone and fentanyl administration and he was put on oxygen therapy by nursing staff. This was documented in a nursing note, but was not on the observation chart, and again this observation did not prompt escalation to a multidisciplinary team review. The stroke registrar reviewed Mr A on Sunday morning. At that time, there were no respiratory issues and the supplemental oxygen had been removed. Mr A's medication chart was reviewed by the stroke registrar who calculated the morphine equivalent dose over the past 24 hours as being 140 milligrams. However, this was incorrect and Mr A had in fact received 280 milligrams of morphine equivalents. Given the high morphine equivalent dose, the stroke registrar started Mr A on regular ibuprofen and slow-release oxycodone 30mg twice a day in addition to the pro-renata analgesia already charted. On Sunday morning, Mr A's oxygen saturation levels dropped to 88% on room air and this was recorded on the observation chart. Oxygen was administered, however, a medical emergency team call or MET call was not activated despite these observations meeting the hospital MET call policy criteria. Overnight on Sunday, Mr A had increasing oxygen requirements up to 4 litres per minute via nasal prongs to maintain his oxygen saturation levels above 94%. An additional 30 milligrams of oxycodone slow release, 20 milligrams of oxycodone immediate release, and 450 micrograms of subcutaneous fentanyl were given overnight in response to high pain scores. A minimum of one hour between doses of various opioids was recommended by hospital policy. However, this was not written on the prescription and nursing staff were not aware of the recommendation. Mr A was administered 20 milligrams of oxycodone at 0245 hours, then an additional 150 micrograms of fentanyl at 0310 hours on Monday morning. At 0500 hours, Mr A was heard to be snoring and a decision was made to delay measuring his vital signs. He was on four hourly observations, so as not to wake him. An hour later, Mr A was found to be unresponsive. 
a medical emergency response call was made and cardiopulmonary resuscitation was commenced, and 40 minutes later, Mr A was pronounced dead. Pathology. The pathologist who completed the autopsy found no clear anatomical cause of death, although did note marked pulmonary edema and cervical spine disease. On toxicological analyses, the oxycodone and fentanyl levels were found to be supratherapeutic. The oxycodone level was 0.2 mg per litre, therapeutic range 0.02 to 0.05 mg per litre, and the fentanyl levels were 4 micrograms per litre, therapeutic range 0.6 to 3.9 micrograms per litre. Given Mr A's past history of sleep apnea and the clinical history, the cause of death was attributed to fentanyl and oxycodone toxicity. Investigation Mr A's death was referred to the coroner as it was an unexpected death. Evidence was heard from Mr A's wife and son, four medical staff and seven nursing staff involved in his treatment. Expert advice was sought from a pharmacologist, an acute pain physician, an intensive care specialist, and a safety manager in the clinical governance unit. The key issues identified for investigation included the medical management of Mr A, the adequacy and frequency of clinical monitoring, including documentation and adherence to hospital escalation protocols, and whether staff were suitably trained in the use of opioid analgesia for acute pain. The Adult Rapid Detection and Response Chart, locally referred to as a radar chart, is the chart used in public hospitals in South Australia to document patients' vital signs and was in place at the time of Mr A's presentation. In addition to the standard vital signs, it also included an assessment of conscious state ratings from zero, awake and alert, to three, difficult to rouse, and records a pain score from zero to 10, where zero means no pain and 10 means highest level of pain the patient has experienced. The radar chart contains four shaded zones, white, yellow, red, and purple. If the observations are recorded in the purple zone, a medical emergency response call is immediately required and senior medical review. Red zone, a registered nurse and medical doctor are required to review the patient within 30 minutes. Yellow zone, a registered nurse must review the patient and consider increasing the frequency of observations. And white zone, no action is required as these observations are considered to be in the normal range. On multiple occasions on different shifts, Mr A's vital signs were in the shaded portion of the radar chart that required action due to high pain scores, hypoxia or family concerns. This should have triggered an emergent medical review and an increase in observation frequency. However, this did not occur. Additionally, documentation of key observations, such as oxygen saturations on the radar chart, were inconsistent and in some circumstances considered inaccurate. For example, Mr A's sedation score was documented as zero, awake and alert, throughout his admission. 
This is despite his family raising concerns on multiple occasions about him appearing sedated, reporting to nursing staff that during their visits, Mr A had difficulty staying awake longer than five to ten minutes and had indeed fallen asleep whilst his wife assisted him in the shower. His family raised these concerns with both nursing staff and the stroke registrar. However, this was not documented nor was it acted upon. A potential explanation for the failure of clinical staff to request an escalation of care was a failure to recognise the significance of high levels of sedation, hypoxia and vomiting as signs of respiratory depression secondary to opioid use. Several nurses stated that the high levels of opioids used were unusual on the stroke ward and at that time they were not familiar with the potential side effects and the local policies on their use. One nurse who had administered oxygen admitted that she had not considered that the hypoxia could be a side effect of the medication. As Mr A improved, she did not escalate the incident to a medical review and did not want to unnecessarily inconvenience medical staff. The stroke registrar said that he did not have any particular expertise and or training in the treatment of acute pain when he added the slow-release analgesia. However, throughout his training, he had regularly seen opioids prescribed in combination for the management of acute pain. A pharmacologist who provided an expert opinion stated that the use of multiple opioid agents in combination increased the complexity and unpredictability of their expected side effects, adding that due to person-to-person -person variation, opioids are dangerous drugs, they have the potential to cause death. He stated that it is essential that those who are monitoring the patients are aware of the additive effects of opioid medications and are accustomed to observing for the specific signs of side effects. In this case, Mr A's difficulty breathing, pronounced sedation and vomiting were considered characteristic for opioid toxicity, however, were largely unrecognised as such. The stroke consultant advised the coroner that had she been made aware of these signs, she would have recognised them as signs of a deteriorating patient and sought advice from the acute pain service. An anaesthetist and pain medicine physician also provided an expert opinion for the coroner, highlighting multiple concerns in the use of opioids for Mr A. In particular, that the use of slow-release opioids for acute pain was unsafe in the absence of specialist monitoring and advice. 2. Opioids should not be given based solely on a patient's reported pain scores. 3. The frequency of observations was insufficient to safely monitor for opioid side effects and identify hypoventilation and oversedation at the time of peak effect. And number 4. Abnormal vital signs, such as hypoxia, may be a non-specific indicator, but suggested that there was an underlying issue that required investigation. Coroner's findings. In conclusion, the coroner found that Mr A's cause of death was due to fentanyl and oxycodone toxicity that would have been prevented by the proper application of hospital escalation pathway protocols. The coroner commented that failure to observe the protocols creates the very risks the protocols are designed to prevent, and that it creates a very real risk that a deteriorating patient may be undetected.
the use of high-dose opioids of different pharmacological profiles with staff who did not adequately understand their potential side effects led to a failure to recognise the need for escalation to senior staff and for a referral to a pain specialist. Contributing factors included inconsistent documentation of observations on the radar chart, the absence of clear written instructions on opioid dosing and the frequency of observations, and competing demands on the senior treating team. The coroner made multiple recommendations, including 1. The process of information sharing amongst medical and nursing staff, focusing on the handover process, be reviewed, and 2 education and training be provided on the dangers of opioid medications and repeated at regular intervals throughout mandatory refresher courses. Author's comments. As a junior medical professional, I've had my fair share of moments when I've been asked to do a task and felt out of my depth. Whether it was prescribing a new medication, reviewing a patient with a condition I was unfamiliar with, or a diagnostic dilemma, the impulse to give it your best and not to bother the senior team members that always seem pulled in 20 different directions is ever-present. Cases like this one remind us that even experienced staff miss red flags and that it is everyone's responsibility to speak up and escalate concerns when something does not seem right. The presence of red flag features, such as high pain scores refractory to analgesia, observations recorded outside the normal parameters of the radar chart, and family concerns, requires senior team member involvement and plans for further investigation and management. Nursing staff are critical to this process, and it is imperative to ensure concerns and plans are communicated within the multidisciplinary team, whether at the bedside on the ward round or at the board round with the nurse in charge. Our next section will be our expert commentaries. Kate, um, our first commentary is Time to Extend Our Medication Safety Net by Anne Laversha. Can you tell us a little bit about Anne Laversha and what you've learned from her expert commentary. Mm. Um, Anne Laversha is a clinical pharmacist and director of medication education and management Australia. Anne's piece, uh, more and more we're moving towards multidisciplinary care in our medical teams. And I think Anne brings a really unique perspective of having a look at our own practice and how we can best welcome and engage with our ward pharmacists as part of our treating team. Thank you. And um, moving on to the second expert commentary that we chose. Um, our second commentary is titled, Don't Give More If It Makes Them Snore. It's by Dr. Anna Corin. Can you tell us a little bit about Anna and what you learned from her expert commentary? Mm. Um, Dr. Anna Corin, I've worked with for some time. She's an emergency physician at the Alfred Health and supervisor of intern training. Uh, Dr. Corin's piece calls out that knee-jerk reaction that I see myself doing all the time. When a patient's in pain, you just want to prescribe something, you want to, to help them. But I think she has a really insightful perspective of, well, perhaps there are other ways that we can do that and how to look at the patient as a whole. Let's listen to both of our expert commentaries. Expert commentary. Don't give more if it makes them snore. From Dr. Anna Corinne. Pain is common but can be difficult to quantify and manage. 
Numerous studies conclude that pain is often unrecognised and undertreated, which has led to educational efforts to improve pain management. In contrast, overprescribing of opioids has emerged as a major public health problem worldwide. Pharmaceutical opioids are now responsible for more deaths and hospitalizations in Australia than illicit opioids such as heroin. Every day in Australia, there are nearly 150 hospitalizations and 14 emergency department admissions that involve opioid harm, and three people die from drug-induced deaths involving opioid use. Abuse and diversion of opioids and morbidity and mortality related to prescription drugs have all increased in the last 20 years. When treating patients with pain, clinicians are sometimes left with diagnostic uncertainty, a complaint that is difficult to objectively measure, and a patient who is on a spectrum of discomfort, distress, fear, anger or frustration. How do you know what the correct amount and type of analgesia is for a fractured clavicle? Although there are guidelines and recommended dose ranges, there is broad variability of individual requirements. So where do you start? What if the imaging is normal or is pending? How do you modify the regimen if a patient has a history of opioid dependence but has a condition that is obviously painful? Do you give more or less analgesia to a stoic farmer with a history of working through painful states, as opposed to a hysterical teenager who is naive to hospitals and frightened? Over the years, I have heard he claims to be in a lot of pain, but when I went to see him, he was asleep. And though undoubtedly pain impacts on sleep quality, can we really extrapolate the severity of pain from our exhausted patient finally falling asleep? Assessment and management can be clouded by physician factors, including personal belief systems, fears, and stereotyping. A patient's pain behaviour can be influenced by health literacy, past experience, and differing values and customs. What preconceptions do you bring to these interactions? For many, opioids represent the ideal analgesic. There are very few absolute contraindications, making it easy to initiate in a time-poor and high-stress hospital environment. With the relaxing of pharmaceutical benefits scheme restrictions in recent years, opioids are increasingly used for the treatment of non-cancer pain, despite limited evidence for their effectiveness. This includes neuropathic pain, renal colic, simple fractures, chronic back pain, and hip and knee pain from osteoarthritis. Expectation setting can be helpful for patients and clinicians, as it is often not possible to achieve the complete absence of pain and it may not be appropriate. This may mitigate the drive for rapidly increasing opioid doses. Start low and go slow. Use short-acting opioids first. Avoid long-acting preparations where possible, but if necessary, stick to short courses. Use lower doses in the elderly and those with comorbidities, including obstructive sleep apnea or airway vulnerability, renal and hepatic impairment. In general, avoid mixing oral and subcutaneous preparations. Consider peak effects and be specific when ordering dosing intervals on medication charts. Prescribe opioids in conjunction with other self-management approaches. 
a multimodal approach to pain management provides more effective analgesia, as well as decreasing opioid requirements and side effects. A morphine-equivalent dose limit of 50 mg per day is recommended, with higher doses only considered with documented functional improvement, risk-benefit assessment, and monitoring of adverse effects. If pain is poorly controlled at this level, specialist pain medicine advice should be sought. Notably, opioid-related deaths can occur even when the prescription is in accordance with guidelines. The essential ingredients for opioid use are monitoring, reassessment and recognition of deterioration. Patients and their families can play an active part in the escalation process and should be empowered to raise concerns to the treating team. Staff not familiar with caring for patients on opioids may need explicit direction of observation frequency, pitfalls such as differentiating the snoring patient due to airway obstruction from the one that is finally getting the sleep that they need, and what should trigger care escalation and review. A normal respiratory rate can be falsely reassuring as it can occur despite severe respiratory depression, with a low tidal volume being the clue to inadequate ventilation. Increasing supplemental oxygen requirements to achieve the same oxygen saturation is a red flag. A better clinical indicator of opioid excess is sedation, and the key to assessing sedation is not whether the patient wakes up easily, but whether they are having difficulty staying awake. Barriers to effective communication between clinicians continue to exist. Many networks have migrated to electronic medical records, but it is still not a perfect solution. Some networks have systems that store information on a combination of electronic medical records, scanned medical records, and other ancillary platforms. Nursing notes are often in a separate section to medical and allied health. Although there is a very reasonable expectation that entries are read and actioned, the system relies on clinicians diligently opening all notes and sections not to miss pertinent information. We are often time poor, and unless a patient is handed over verbally for prioritised review, a clinician with competing priorities and interests may be significantly delayed in seeing a patient. The tragic death of Mr A highlights that pain management can be nuanced and dynamic. Help is available from pain services, pharmacies and hospital guidelines. Explicit thought and instructions are needed regarding timing of comprehensive monitoring and triggers for escalation. Involvement of the patient and their family in care decisions should be encouraged and their concerns should trigger senior clinician review. Expert commentary, time to extend our medication safety net from Anne Laversha. This commentary will focus on the opportunity to improve medication safety in light of the death of Mr. A. The case highlights a number of issues, including education and training about the dangers of opioid medications, medical cover, communication and appropriate patient observation and documentation. Medication safety. Medication safety is a worldwide problem. In 2017, the World Health Organization launched the third global patient safety challenge with the theme of medication without harm. 
The challenge aims to make improvements at each stage of the medication process, including prescribing, dispensing, administering, monitoring and use. In 2020, the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare published Australia's response, which is to reduce severe, avoidable medication errors, adverse drug events and medication-related hospital admissions by 50% by 2025. One focus is reducing harm from high-risk medicines, which includes opioid analgesics, one focus is reducing harm from high-risk medicines, which includes opioid analgesics, insulin, anticoagulants and antipsychotics. Healthcare teams. Cultural change within healthcare systems must occur in order to deliver the best result for patients. Healthcare professionals should work closely together across all areas in order to not only address the significant issue of over-medication, which can lead to medication safety issues, but improved shared care with more comprehensive knowledge and support. Professional regulation in parallel to this will help ensure adequate training in safe and effective medicines use is embedded in undergraduate training, as well as continuing professional development. Healthcare teams provide the best care when amongst the members there is an appropriate level of skills and knowledge, and there is respect and appreciation of the contribution that each member can bring. Involvement of a pharmacist in the patient's care. The coroner concluded that Mr A's cause of death was attributed to fentanyl and oxycodone toxicity. This raises a number of issues. Nowhere in the coroner's findings is there any mention of pharmacist involvement in the patient's care. Thus, some important questions need to be addressed. 1. Is the pharmacist considered to be a member of the healthcare team? 2. Is there a culture of inclusion? If not, why not? 3. When is the pharmacist involved with the healthcare team? Do they attend ward rounds? Are they available on the ward? Do they carry a phone or a pager? Are they available at weekends? And if it is after hours, is it known that there will be a pharmacist on call? 4. When is the pharmacist involved with the patient? 5. When are they taking a best possible medication history, providing medication chart reviews, supplying discharge medications and medication counselling and education? And 6. Are the pharmacists involved with medication education for doctors and nurses? This aforementioned education can take several forms. It can be ad hoc, on the ward as issues arise, or more formally, in a scheduled education session. Considering one's own practice. The questions outlined above have been posed because it is useful to reflect on one's own involvement as part of a healthcare team. When practicing as a clinical pharmacist, I'm usually in a hospital where there are interns and registrars that I have taught in my university courses. This experience is very rewarding for us all because I find they are comfortable in seeking me out for information and clarification. This saves them time and provides me with more information about our patients. We are working together as part of a healthcare team for the patient's good. Prescribing with supporting evidence. 
A significant comment that was made in the report was that opioids had been regularly seen prescribed in combination for the management of acute pain. This included using slow-release opioids for acute pain. It can be useful to see what others are prescribing, but this should always be supported with evidence and not just taken at face value. Through returning to our basic knowledge of commonly used medications and applying this in the clinical setting, it will provide the framework for our practice. Knowing the indications, for example, is this medication appropriate for neuropathic pain, adverse drug reactions, for example, is there difficulty breathing, sedation and vomiting, when the different dosage forms, say oral or injectable, reach peak concentration and what is the relative potency of the different medications, for example oxycodone versus fentanyl, should frame our thinking and practice. Improving communication in all its forms. Communication of appropriate information requires clear instruction, including legible orders and notes if handwritten, and adequate information on PRN orders. In addition to reviewing orders, all members of the healthcare team need to remember to look at what has been administered to the patient. As healthcare has increasingly focused on consumers, there is an opportunity to improve collection of information from patients and carers, as well as reading the nursing observations in the progress notes and receiving data from other members of the healthcare team. Audits to improve strategies. When concerning practices are identified, there is an opportunity to conduct an audit to find out the extent of the practice, implement improvement strategies, and monitor these. Audits are useful continuing professional development activities and can also provide valuable information which can link with the national safety and quality health service standards for assessment and accreditation. Improving medication safety using this coroner's report. Medication safety should be a high priority for all members of the healthcare team. This case provides an opportunity to assess your own practice and the systems within which the healthcare team works. Welcome back. Our next section is comments from our peers. Kate, can you tell me what comment resonated with you the most and why? The comment about checking understanding of the ward staff that actually providing the patient care really resonated with me because we all have different backgrounds, different knowledge and skill sets, and may interpret the same piece of information in two different ways. So I think touching base with the bedside nurse or the nurse in charge and just checking you're on the same page is really invaluable. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay. And let's listen to our comments from our peers. Comments from our peers. Opioid prescribers have a duty of care to educate patients on the best practice management of pain, as well as the short and long-term consequences of opioid use. Seemingly simple decisions in a clinical review or ward round can lead a patient down an unexpected path. To me, it's a reminder to try and be mindful of the downstream effects of our decisions. The importance of understanding what you are prescribing and not assuming the ward staff are comfortable and knowledgeable is important. That's all for this edition of the Future Leaders Communique. Don't forget to listen out for our sister publications, podcasts, the Clinical Communique and the Residential Aged Care Communique. 
You can find our print editions at www.thecommunicase.com. That's all for us for now, and we'll see you again for the next edition. Thanks for listening.